Okay, thank you, uh, <clears throat> Kyle, for leading us in, in prayer and, uh, and reading Scripture for us. And, you know, part of Kyle's prayer was, again, about the building. Um, and he said all that we can say is, wow, it's really true. Um, there's going to be a, a report at some point that will come out uh, explaining everything, but I figure I should at least tell you two things. One, uh, we have a stewardship team that is working toward a, a putting together a capital campaign for our congregation and uh, seeking out what, what costs we ought to be uh, contributing to um, as we go forward. But um, just so you know, our external fundraising campaign is pretty much wrapped up now. Uh, I'm no longer actively doing that. Uh, always willing, hey, if you're watching, always willing to receive gifts and donations. Um, but uh, the official sort of campaign is completed, and uh, we were, God brought uh, just shy of $2.1 million of external gifts to Grace Valley towards the purchase of this property. And, yeah... So there's peeps out there who really believe in the mission and vision of this church. I hope we do too, you know. Um, it's, a, it's a great privilege, uh, but it's a great responsibility at the same time. And uh, yeah, numbers like that still, they still baffle me. But that's what God did. Uh, we are in this series on decision-making and how to make decisions that please God. How do we make decisions that are, that are wise? And as we've been going through this, uh, we've, 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 we've gone back time and time again to these, these two fundamental things that the Bible tells us about decision-making, and they're these. First of all, where the Bible gives a commandment, we are called to obey. God's will is that we obey His moral commandments in Scripture. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, where there is no commandment, and the issue is not necessarily moral in nature, what we're supposed to do is we are supposed to exercise freedom and responsibility through the application of wisdom. Exercise freedom and responsibility through the application of of wisdom. In other words, we have to figure out what is it we should do, what's the best thing for us to do in this situation, and then figure out the best way to do it. Now, next week, we're going to go through kind of a, a, a somewhat detailed uh, set of steps that we can use to approach questions that require wise decision-making. And I want to thank those of you who have been waiting for four weeks for that uh, from the very first sermon, you were expecting a how-to, and you haven't gotten a how-to for all these weeks, but you keep coming back in the hopes that it will come next week. It will come, okay? I promise to do it next week. But this week, what we are going to do, though, is we're going to actually look at the impact of God's moral will on decision-making. What is the impact of God's moral will on our decisions? Because there's more to uh, following God's moral will, His commands in Scripture, than just 
avoiding breaking rules. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. All these things we see listed in the Ten Commandments or all these things we see listed uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, etc. The fact is, is that God's will, His moral will, has a role to play in all our decision-making. And we're going to look at that together this morning. We're going to look at what that role is, God, the role of God's moral will in our decision-making, and then we're going to look at how we're supposed to apply that moral will to our decision-making, okay? That's what we're going to do. So, first of all, the role of God's moral will in our decision-making. In our New Testament reading this morning, it says in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. You want to know what God wants from you? You want to know what God wants from His people? You know what God wants, in fact, from all people in the world? He wants their sanctification. He wants them in their character, in their nature, in the way they conduct themselves in their lives. He wants them to reflect the character and nature of His own perfect Son, Jesus. In other words, He wants us to be holy. You'll see all throughout this New Testament passage that Paul talks about the call to be holy. Now, that's what sanctification means. The root word from which we get the word sanctification is the Greek word for holy. And literally, that word means set apart for special use. It means set apart for special use. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that people were called holy, but you'll also see that things occasionally were called holy. So, uh, there were various utensils in the, old, in the temple and in the tabernacle, for example, that were called holy because those utensils were set apart for special use in the temple or in the tabernacle. And of course, places were uh, considered holy as well. The tabernacle was a holy place. The temple of God was a holy place because they were set apart for the worship of God. They were set apart for the presence of God. And there were even uh, gradations of holiness within those places, right? So that there was the, the courtyard, then there was the holy place, then there was the most holy place within the center of the, court, uh, of the temple, And that was the place where God dwells. And so things and places could be holy in the Old Testament, but people were set apart to be holy as well. The whole Levitical class, the the Levite clan of the Israelites were set apart, were sanctified, were made holy for the purpose of leading the people of God in worship. And interestingly enough, holiness doesn't necessarily mean pure moral perfection because Jesus himself says that he sanctifies himself for his purpose, for his mission. What does that mean is? That means Jesus, who was morally perfect in every way, as the only human being to walk the earth that was, that was uh, morally perfect in every way, he set himself apart for his mission, his job of going to the cross. And God says here in verse 3, or Paul says in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. In other words, God's people are supposed to be set apart for God's special use too. And that use, or let's use the language of purpose, that purpose is not something that you're supposed to try to figure out and discover. Like you lay in bed at night or in the morning and think, 
Why am I here? What's the point of being here? No, it's clearly spelled out in Scripture. You know why you and I exist? We exist for the glory of God. That's why we're on this earth. That's why everything exists. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, one of the most significant questions that you wrestle with as a modern Western person living in this world of incredible choice and no absolute truth because everything is relative, you wake up every day asking or wrestling with the question, what am I here for? And the Bible tells you what you're here for. You may not want to live for God's glory. You may not find that attractive. You may not find that a, something that gets you excited uh, each day as you get up, but that is what you're here for. And certainly that is what a Christian is here for. We are here to exist for God's glory, for His pleasure. That's why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In Colossians 3, verse 17, Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, and if you've been around churches, you know that the language of word and deed is meant to be comprehensive of of your life. Everything is included either in word or deed. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. This is our life goal if we are a Christian. Now, why am I belaboring all of this for you? Because it means, friends, that the moral will of God is more, following the moral will of God, obeying the moral will of God, it is more than just obeying the Ten Commandments. It's more than just obeying the Sermon on the Mount. When you have to make a decision, it's not just enough to say, okay, does this decision, if I do this, will I break a command? Yes? Okay, then I don't do this. Or, no? Okay, then I do do this. No, no, no. It's much, much more than that. If God's moral will is comprehensive in the sense that your purpose for existence is to glorify God, then when you have to make a decision, you ask yourself at the very outset, what path in this fork in the road that I find myself in, what path better enables me to achieve the goal of glorifying God with my life? Or what decision better equips me to fulfill my ultimate purpose? Or let me put it another way, uh, how will what I want to do, uh, or, or how, will I, how will the decisions in my life and the choices I make in my life, how will they, how will they get me closer to God? This is a, an interesting concept if you think about it, because Very often in our relationship with God, when we think about our relationship with God and we think about the choices we have to make and the decisions that we have to make, we want to know how God will fit into us achieving our goals. I ask God to bless my plans. I ask God to be with me as I pursue the thing that I want. And what Scripture says is is that The starting point is to actually flip the script and to say, look, your mission, if you have a personal mission and vision for your life, you know, some some people have that, like what's your life motto or whatever. My personal mission and vision in my life is to glorify God with who I am. That's the first thing that, that the first step so to speak, in making decisions that impact your life. Let me, let me give you a couple illustrations to help flesh this out a little bit. 
So my, my mentor, um, we were actually talking about this, this situation or, or this very issue, and uh, my mentor gave me an illustration or a story that, that just really struck with me. And he, he told me about a man that he knew who lived in Toronto, had an excellent job. But if he were to leave Toronto for a job offer in Winnipeg, it would have a tremendous uh, effect on his, uh, his career, like positive effect on his career. This is like a major step up the corporate ladder. And so he had to decide whether he was going to move from Toronto to Winnipeg in order to do this. Now, just keep the weather question out of it, okay? No, nobody should ever move to Winnipeg, I think, given what the weather is like there, but keep that out of it. Here's the issue. This, this gentleman, um, this man was gay, and he had come to be convinced and believed that God had called him to live a life of chastity. And so he had done things to enable himself to do that and live a fulfilling life, live a life of satisfaction and joy, etc. He had a very strong church that he was a part of. He had very close relationships in his church. They were his family and they were his friends and he had been enveloped into the, the, the families of the church. And so he felt very, very comfortable in that church. And it, it, it was a community that enabled him to flourish because we're all looking to flourish as human beings. And if he were to leave Toronto and take this job in Winnipeg, he would be leaving that community behind that had been so helpful in his battle against the flesh and in his desire to, to follow God's will as, as outlined for him in the Word. And so he had a tough decision to make. Now, here's the thing. Moving to Winnipeg on the face of it is not immoral. Staying in Toronto is not immoral. It's not actually a, a moral question. It's not a moral issue. And yet, the man had to think of this question through the grid of which decision is going to help me best fulfill my ultimate purpose, which is to glorify God and find peace and joy in Him. Now listen, you know what that means? That means that the first decisions, that the, the decisions that seem so obvious to us in our hierarchy of desires, financial gain and success is a very high uh, goal in our hierarchy of desires, are not necessarily ordered properly. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more in a couple of minutes, so hang in there. So that's one illustration. Now, and maybe you're like, okay, I, I get that one. Um, but that's not really my situation. It doesn't kind of relate to me, and I see a lot of young people in, in, in church right now, so let me uh, try another one. Here's a girl, and she likes this guy, and he's funny, and he's handsome. In my experience, girls don't seem to care too much about that, but because you see all these pretty girls with not very handsome men, so apparently that's not a big issue. Um, but he's funny, he's nice, uh, he makes them laugh, gives them, a, you know, that kind of thing. And they like him, and they're a Christian. And so they're wrestling with the, and that's good, because they're wrestling the question whether they should date this person and, and date this guy seriously. Do they see a future with this person, etc. Now, the man is a Christian, and that's good, so they're not breaking a rule. The Bible says very, very clearly, all of you who are listening to this, the Bible says very, very clearly that if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you must not date and marry a non-Christian. That is just a non-negotiable. If you don't like it, you've got to wrestle with 2 Corinthians 6. Go there, start at verse 19, and fight the Bible. 
because that's as clear as it gets. But is that all that we're supposed to think about when we're making a decision about who to date and who to be in relationship? No, because the Bible has more things to say. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 7, for example, the Apostle Paul says something absolutely startling. In verses 7 to 9, he says this. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is, to ma- for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What is the Apostle Paul saying here? Paul himself was unmarried. And in this passage, what he says is, is that being married, unmarried is good, but it's not for everyone. For some of us, being single and remaining unmarried as Jesus himself was, as the Apostle Paul was, is a good thing and an honorable thing and a wonderful way for us to fulfill our calling to glorify God. But for some of us, it could actually be an obstacle to holiness. That's why Paul says it is better for them to marry than to burn with passion. See, it's not a sin to stay single. In fact, you can make an argument that that the New Testament actually elevates singlehood, which is something that the church doesn't pay enough attention to when it's so incredibly family-oriented and it makes this... I'm not going to get on this track there. If you're single, you are cherished according to the New Testament. So it's not a sin to stay single, and it's not a sin to marry. It's a question of wisdom. And so the question that a girl should be asking about a guy is, is he fun? Does he make me laugh? Do we have a good time together, etc.? Yes, that's all well and good and all so important. Am I attracted to them? Of course, those are factors that you, you should consider. But the big question should be, Does being with this guy get me closer to God? Does dating him help me fulfill my calling to glorify God? Are they someone who enables me to best fulfill my purpose? Because when I'm with them, they they support me and encourage me and they nurture my gifts and they, they call me out on my sin and they direct me to Jesus when I'm struggling. You get the picture? So the moral will of God actually, in a grand way, in an overarching way, has a lot to say about the decisions that we make. And it can be decisions about who we're seeing, what schools we're going to, what programs we're pursuing, what uh, house we're buying and in what neighborhood we're buying it. It's a very, very helpful grid. If you decide everything through that grid... You begin to be a person who habitually makes wise decisions. Now, here's the question, of course. You say to yourself, if I have to do that every time I decide something, like, I'm never going to get anything done in my life, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I just want to have Cheerios. Do I have to sit there at breakfast time and go, hmm, Cheerios, like, am I supposed to research the company that makes the Cheerios and find out that they pay a living wage to all the people that they source their ingredients from, et cetera, et cetera? You can go to an extreme with this, most obviously, that's true. But I'll just say two things on that, first of all. One is, there are lots of decisions that, that have less of an impact on our ability to glorify God than other decisions do. 
obviously. The bigger decisions have a bigger impact, the smaller decisions have a smaller impact. But the second thing is more important, and it's this. According to the Bible, according to the Bible, it's never meant to be a burden to use this grid. It's actually meant to be freeing to use this grid. And it's freeing in the way it's applied. So we're on point two now. Point two, how do we apply God's moral will to our decisions in a way that is freeing, in a way where it becomes second nature, it becomes innate. It's, it's, you could almost use Nike and say, you just do it habitually. You use this grid subconsciously. Well, how do you get there? Well, that's, that's what our, our Old Testament text is for. If you go to Psalm 37, we're going to focus our attention basically on verse 4. In Psalm 37, verse 4, David says, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, be careful. We said this last week, too. We, remember, us human beings, by nature, we are selfish. And so, whenever we can spin the Bible in a self-centered direction, we will try to do that. So, you read, take delight in the Lord, and He will grant you the desires of your heart. And you say, (laughs) yes, I'm going to delight in God. God, you're great. God, you're awesome. You're going to interpret that as God is calling me to go to church, and God is calling me to give a portion of my money to ministry, and time to ministry, and He's calling me to read my Bible, and He's calling me to pray. When I do those things and show that I'm taking delight in the Lord, He'll give me the things that I want, and my life will go the way I want. And you might say to yourself, no, I would never think that way. But think about this. Come on. Think about this. When you are feeling like your relationship with God is especially close, and if you've been a Christian for for any number of years, you know that your relationship with God kind of goes like this, right? There are times where you feel very close and you, you feel like He is ministering to your heart. Maybe you're going through a hard time or, or, or maybe you've had some bad news that you have to get through or whatever, and you feel that He is ministering His comfort to you, etc. Or maybe you're going through a great time and you're just experiencing God's blessing in, in powerful ways and you're thinking, Lord, what, my, our devotional time, I, I feel like you're sitting right here while I talk to you and when I read your word, I feel like... like you know, you're speaking directly to me and every, every verse on every page was written especially for me, etc. And you're feeling like, like you're really close with God and then something bad happens. You lose your job. You get a diagnosis. Somebody breaks up with you. You're finals like you do, you fail a class, whatever, something bad happens to you, and what's your first reaction? What do you want to say? God, what's up with that? You, you, you immediately think to yourself, well, God, how, how could this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Things were going so well. We're tight. You and me, we're tight, and now this is happening to me. See, it is so easy for us to, to see the relationship as one in which God actually is there to serve us. And so when things don't go the way we expect them to, we, we question. 
But that's not what the text is saying, okay? What the text is saying is, is that when you actually delight in God, what does it mean to delight in God, to take delight in Him? It means to find your joy supremely in Him, to find your peace supremely in Him, not in the circumstances around you, not in the fact that you aced that class, not in the fact that uh, she asked you out, not in the fact that you got into that school or got that job or nailed that promotion or landed that big account or, or, or whatever, but your joy is in Him just for being who He is as the one who knows absolutely everything, who controls absolutely everything, who upholds absolutely everything, the one who knows the number of hairs that are on your head and will not allow a single one of them to fall out without His will because He knows you so intimately and cares about you so intimately. When you take pleasure in worship, when you come to church and you say, to bask in this story that Jesus, the Son of the living God, who who went into this world and showed us the love of God, when we, when we had the opportunity, we grabbed him and we threw him on a piece of wood and we nailed him to it and then we stuck him into the ground so that he could hang in front of everybody naked and ashamed and we spit at him and we mocked him and we made fun of him and all that while at the drop of a hat he could have called a million angels to wipe out all his enemies but instead he cries out, Father, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The thought of that story sinking deep into your heart just melts you. And you can't get enough of it. You come to church every story and you hear some guy like me rant and rave about Jesus' love and how he died on the cross for your sins and you just, you can't get enough of it. That's what it means to delight in the Lord. And being with him is your, your deepest, most pleasurable experience. When that's your relationship with God, He'll grant you the desires of your heart. Why? Because your desires will start to conform to His desires. Your desires will become like His desires. You will will want what He wants. You'll say, your wish is my command, Lord. Or maybe even better, your command is my wish. God, And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because whenever you're in love, what do you want to do? You want to please the beloved. That's why it says here in verse 1 of of the New Testament text, 1 Thessalonians 4, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. This isn't how to live in order to make sure that God is, is satisfied that you didn't break the rules. No, you live in such a way that brings him joy, brings him pleasure, because he sees in you the character of his son reflected back to him. This is why St. Augustine, my favorite church father, he said, love God and do whatever you please. Let that sing. love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. You know this. If you're in a deep romantic relationship, you know that you want to avoid doing things that offend your beloved. Why? Not because you're afraid of their punishment, not in a healthy relationship anyway, but because you don't want to hurt them, because you cherish them. When you focus on the gospel, here's the point I'm trying to make. 
When you focus on the gospel, that Jesus lived for you, that he died for you, that he knows you intimately, he knows your fears, he knows your sins, he knows it all, he knows that you most of the time are too busy to be in communion with him, but he remains faithful to you, he is there, come hell or high water, literally, when you focus on that, you are trained in love. And your loves become ordered properly so that your decisions become habitually about glorifying God. Remember I talked about disordered loves before? Think about it. If you, if you value your work over your health, your love is disordered and you eventually will lose your health because you'll burn out, you'll get ulcers, whatever, and then you'll lose your work because you can't do it anymore. If you value money over relationships, you will lose relationships. You may have money, but it will no longer bring you any joy because the whole point of having the money was to be able to use them to benefit relationships. See, when you focus on the gospel, when you love God and do whatever you please, when you focus on the first thing first, it reorders your loves so that you can be the kind of person who makes wise decisions through the grid of glorifying God instinctively, innately, simply out of your being. It's, it's who you are. I didn't have a really cool closing illustration or anything. So I will just say, Amen. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be the kind of people who make wise decisions, who actually want to live for your glory. When we live for your glory, Father, we, we find ourselves most fulfilled and overjoyed. Lord, make the gospel of Jesus Christ beautiful to us. There's a place where, where Peter says that the angels long to look into the gospel story. They never get tired of thinking about it and working out the implications of it. Well, well may we be like the angels, we pray. May we be even more desirous of the gospel story working its way into our hearts than the angels were because the gospel is about saving us. Angels weren't getting saved, but we are. Do this, we pray, for your glory. Yes, for your glory, our joy, and in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we go to the table, uh, as I forgot to mention at the beginning of the sermon, uh, again, I'm sorry about that, but uh, if there are any questions, questions for clarification or application maybe uh, about the message this morning, please feel free to ask them. You can raise your hand to ask. You can text 905-517-0936 if you have a question. That's cool too. You better, you better have fast fingers though. I'm not going to stand here forever. Any questions?
All right, well, then we're going to go to the table together. And, you know, in some ways, the, the whole message has been, oh, wait, got one. They were only fast enough to say, I have one. <laughs> so now I've got to wait for the whole thing to come through. Can we actually love God enough and perfectly to do what you suggest? Well, yeah, in heaven. Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, um, we will be free of sin, the very things that uh, stand in the way of us being able to love God perfectly and purely. We'll never be able to accomplish it on this side of glory, but, 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 you definitely can make progress, okay? Sanctification, like, you know, we really emphasize the holy being set apart, etc. Um, that, that is actually a process, a lifelong process, where we become more like Jesus Christ over time. And so, you can learn to love God more dearly than, uh, than you do today. And like I said, your relationship with God goes like this, like in any relationship. But I, I, I like to use marriage as an analogy because I think it's, I think it's the closest human analogy to, um, to the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And, and that is, um, you know, young, when you're young and you're in love, your love is, is not as mature as the love that you have after being together for many decades. Uh, you have to work on your relationship. So, you know, it's very common for people to, you know, make sure that they have date nights to stay connected and all this kind of stuff. And they, they read marriage books about communication and, you know, how to structure their sex life and how to deal with uh, division of labor in the home and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's a very conscious effort that has to be made by young people, especially when they get married, to, to learn how to love one another. And the older you get, the more you know your spouse. And the more you know your spouse, the more you know how to conform yourself to, to what their desires are. You know what they want, you know what pleases them, you know what they need, and you know how to fulfill those needs, and you know what their gifts and abilities are, and you, you know how to nurture those things. And it becomes more... Uh, more innate, it becomes more natural, it becomes more habitual. In the same way, when you're, when you're first in a relationship with God, you have a lot to learn about how to please Him, because you've been living according to a certain grid that is not the biblical grid, and now you're stepping out of that grid and moving into the, the biblical grid, and that takes effort and, and a lot of like conscious effort to to develop the habits and the, and the way of thinking that makes you a person who wisely seeks to honor God in their decisions. But over time, as you get to know Him, and as he, your love for Him grows, you become more and more the kind of person who habitually lives in a way that is pleasing to Him because you know more instinctively the way that is pleasing to Him. But you'll never... You'll never get there fully and completely this side of glory. That is true. But if you don't make any progress in that direction, you are totally losing out on the joy that comes of living this way.
Like, don't forget. Living the eternal life, the New Testament talks about... I'll try to be quick. When the New Testament talks about receiving eternal life, it's actually not primarily talking about dying and going to heaven. It's talking about receiving eternal life in the here and now. Jesus says this in John. He says, this is eternal life, that you would know the one true God and his son whom you have sent. That's eternal life. You experience eternal life in the here and now. How? Through your relationship with Christ, you experience the, the blessings of eternity in the here and now. You experience freedom from guilt in the here and now. You experience freedom from the fear of death in the here and now. You, you experience knowledge of absolute truth in a world that doesn't believe there is any available in the here and now. You experience meaning and purpose in life. Remember I was saying before, you get up every day and you know why you're here. And you experience that in the here and now. And then you experience the relationship of the beloved, the God who created you. You get to know him personally and intimately in the here and now. Many of us have been raised in a Christian home, so we've always had an awareness of Jesus. And when we came to faith, you know, that, that, that change from I was not necessarily a believer to now I am a believer is, is sort of... Uh, less tangible, but for some who have come like right out of uh, atheism, secularism, paganism, whatever, and they become a Christian and they, they, they discover these truths that I've just enumerated for you, they discover them. For the first time, they say, man, like I am living for the first time in my life. I am living. I'm really living. Because that's what the gospel offers us. So, I forget what the question was, but that was my answer to it anyway. 